This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by restaurant subscription services, Mr. Coley. Pay per chew uh, coming to restaurants across the country. What is going on with that phenomenon? I have been a late adopter of the kind of app-driven ordering, if you will. Um, early adopter, Carson Chandler. Where is it out? Shouldn't be, shouldn't be expected. Shouldn't be unexpected. Um, but I will tell you, in this article, Paper Chew and these uh, subscription programs that restaurants are rolling out, they talk about Panera. <clears throat> I do use the Panera app because we have a Panera like a block away. And man, it is great. I, it is one of the restaurant apps that I really, really utilize a lot. And I constantly get pushes to get the subscription coffee service, which I try to limit my coffee intake. So I, I don't I don't buy into it. But if you, it's a heck of a deal, man. I mean, it is a heck of a deal. Um, like if you're going to get your morning cup of joe at one particular place, this you should be doing this. Um, and so... I think the Panera coffee deal is is a good deal if that's your if that's your bag. So I expect to see this kind of taken off. I expect to see some brands kind of leaning into this as they as more and more of their revenue comes from app based orders. Well, once they once they, it's kind of a, I don't want to say lost leader because that's really not what it is, but it's it's whatever's going to get you in the door, whatever's going to get you in the family, whatever's going to get you in a relationship with that brand, I think it's actually a really, really smart play to kind of tether, further tether the consumer to the brand. So uh, interesting, interesting development in the kind of ongoing you know, morphing of the restaurant business model. And on that interesting note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go superside. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the Wall Street Journal posted an excellent article this week on the tipping issue and the IRS's new proposed voluntary tip reporting program. We discuss the merits of the issue and if the new proposal is merely a solution in search of a problem. And Howard Schultz has put himself back in the spotlight by suggesting in recent interviews that his unionization issues have very little to do with his company and more to do with larger societal problems. We'll discuss how that went over. And while downtown restaurants and bars are still reeling from the pandemic, new data suggests that it's likely to get worse over the next decade. We'll take a look at that as well. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line public strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Mr. Coley, you and I talked at length this week and shared some communication with our buddy Aaron Frazier, the National Restaurant Association, on a Wall Street Journal article entitled, Lousy Tippers Are Just Misunderstood, talking about the IRS's new proposal on voluntary tip reporting programs. You had some, some, uh, some thoughts on this whole issue space, this article in particular, you said it was one of the best written articles you've seen in a while on the subject. Would you mind opining for our audience? Well, to set the table, myself and probably all the listeners um, are constantly, I mean, I just bang my head against the wall. Every article I read on tipping is not well reported and, and lacks kind of context around, you know, the tipped wage and, and, and how it works and, and all that. This is probably, this is the best article own tipping 
that I remember reading. You know, it's been months, if not years, since I've come across an article that's is well researched and is well put together and kind of covers all four corners of tipping. And obviously, it's related to the the pending IRS proposal um, that we talked about last week or the week before. But really, it kind of goes into all the the connected issues around tipping and kind of the, the, the focus of the piece or the start of the piece is, you know, are there underreported tips out there? <clears throat> and, you know, essentially the, the, the piece is saying, yes, there probably are. And the IRS wants to capture it. And that's what's driving a lot of this. But then it goes into a lot of the cost impacts. There's one paragraph in particular where they look at an olive garden in New Hampshire, which, you know, has ties essentially to the federal tip credit, and then comparing that to one in California, where you have, you know, an escalating tip wage that's that's going up to, what is it? Is it, is it 15.50 now? It's um, anyway, a lot higher. Yeah. I'll let you do correction in that in a sec, Joe, but a lot higher. And so, you know, they basically come out that you know, according to this this research they've done, that the the cost of chicken Alfredo in the California location is ten percent higher. And so, you know, there's a bunch of kind of layers to this article where they go into stuff and go a lot deeper than the normal reporting goes on the tipped wage. So, I'd encourage everyone to give it give it a look. It's really a great piece. Franklin, help me understand. You know, the issue against the backdrop of a cashless society, essentially, you know, our move toward a cashless society. I was in a uh, food and beverage establishment uh, last week, uh, underscored beverage establishment, and I saw a, an, an older guy pull out a, a wad of cash and pay for his, his, his meal. And uh, was, it, was it a mirrored bar? Excuse me? What, was there a mirror behind the bar that you were looking at as you looked at this <laughs> well played out of cash? It was, it was not I. Uh, I never have cash, much to the chagrin of valets across the country. But um, but my point being, I saw this guy take out a, a lot of cash and pay for his his bill in uh, in, in cash. And it was I was like taking it back. Like you just don't see that anymore with an electronic based currency, for lack of a better term. How much underreported tipping can there be? You know, I mean, no one's carrying cash anymore. Uh, we're, we're almost we're going toward a cashless society. Is this a uh, a solution in, in search of a problem that doesn't really exist? Are there? Are, are you asking? Are there agencies and elected officials that are searching for problems that don't exist and cooking up? regulatory and legislative schemes for problems that may not exist or may be going away. Is that what you're proposing here? I just want to, I just want to get it straight, Joe. Yeah, maybe. Is that maybe. what you're trying to say? I just, I just, I find it fascinating that we're, we're doing all this and everything is traceable now, you know, and, and it's not like it was 20 years ago or 10 years ago, even five years ago. I just, I find it just an interesting. Well, I like, I like to tip in crypto and, you try to track it down, IRS. Uh, I wish you, I wish you luck with my, with my Bitcoin, my Bitcoin tips. I look. I, I think this is a, a fool's errand. Maybe a little aggressive, but you know, like if we can play this game all day long, you know, let's let's send folks to the to the flea market. You know, let's you know the kid, you know, cutting the lawn, right? The 
you know, the lemonade stand. Now that's that's a little far removed from this, but generally there's been kind of this agreement that, you know, we're, we're going to we're going to let some of this stuff just kind of slide because it's in the margins and probably doesn't matter that much and is not in the grand scheme of things. There's economic activity that's occurring that we're just kind of not going to not going to worry about so much um, because tackling it would be, you know, more or less impossible. And this has always kind of fallen, I think, more or less in that category. And we've come to these working agreements where we're capturing most of it, but some of it is is probably not not being not being captured. Um, to your point, I do think that this is a problem that's that's less and less a problem every day. I mean, I, I do all my tip. I, I have I can't remember the last time I paid for cash for any food or meal. I, I you know I just I don't remember it at all. Um, it was probably in a stadium, but you know, that's, yeah, I, I think, I think that this is a foolhardy endeavor overall. And, and I, I think you make a, a good point that it's, uh, it's probably going to solve itself over time. Once I reach 65 and, and become just an official cranky old man, I'll start leaving tips like little idioms or axioms on yellow post-it notes at the table, little, you know, life lessons, Aesop's fables as my tip instead of financial Franklin, let's finish this section where we started. Uh, reference again the article, Lousy Tippers Are Just Misunderstood, Wall Street Journal, February 22. Go take a read if you haven't. Mr. Coley, the industry CEO that can't seem to stay out of the news one way or the other, Mr. Mr. Schultz from that uh, little, little coffee stand out in uh, Seattle, has been uh, making a bunch of national news in the last week or so, last couple of weeks, opining on the state of affairs in the country and, and saying that the growing wave of unionization is, is just an outlet of frustration and by, by young people about the status quo. He is, he is saying that the union issue is a manifestation of a much bigger problem. Uh, when did Mr. Schultz rise to the level of uh, societal opiner? Like forever ago. This is his. This is his bag, baby. And guess what? He's right. His essentially his his line was, "It's not me. It's you guys." You know, and he's right. Things have changed. Things have fundamentally changed. We talk about it all the time. It's a generational thing. COVID ch- changed things. The expectations of workers, particularly younger workers, is different today than it was 10 years ago. Howard Schultz is right. But I do think that what he's saying kind of comes off a little a little whiny, and I'm not sure that it it lands that – I'm just not sure that it lands. Essentially what he's saying is this unionization thing at Starbucks is, is not about Starbucks. It's about these gripes with how – society and the system has broken down and failed folks and Starbucks hasn't failed folks. Everything else has failed folks. And I, I do think that there's first off, <clears throat> there was clearly a recognition when Howard Schultz took back over, he went on a listening tour of the restaurants and changed a bunch of things operationally. So clearly there was some recognition, whether it came through in this conversation or not, that Starbucks could do better. And and I, I think if he were pressed in that, he would, he would admit that and say that too. But but I don't know that that really helps. He is right. He is 100% right. I don't know that that kind of positioning really helps Starbucks at all with, with their current situation or 
you know, where they're, where they're looking to be in the future. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting because his, his, I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably stereotype here, his employee base tends to be in that kind of college age. He doesn't have a lot of 14 year olds in there. He doesn't have a lot of 70 year olds in there. He has that kind of, you know, 18 to 28, um, uh, age group, if you will, many of them in some level of college or have gone through college or in college, blah, blah, blah. And they're, they're working at Starbucks, which was not their, their plan. And I think there's some angst that they've invested in, you know, training and education and so forth. And, you know, they're, they're grinding coffee beans at six thirty in the morning and there's, angst. <clears throat> I think they're, they're kind of maybe taking it out on him. Yeah, and I wish the audience could have seen you shimming your shoulders as you were kind of describing, get a little jiggy as you were describing the stereotypical Starbucks employee. Um, but uh, I think there's that. But I think that's throughout society. I think Howard Schultz is right that there is there is that there is a generational angst there that expects a lot more out of their employment situation, r- regardless of where it is, and. Uh, a lot of those people are working at Starbucks and they're not feeling fulfilled um, through that, through that job. And that, that is a problem for Starbucks and that that's a problem for a lot of employers. It's a more acute problem for some employers and others. Um, But, and I do think because of the type of employee workforce and the branding and the positioning of Starbucks, that that challenge lands more squarely with them than it does for other brands. But it's a challenge for all, for all companies kind of operating in this environment um, and will continue to be for the uh, for the foreseeable future. I will tell you, though, that if I may just his this is why I want to see Howard Schultz in the help committee, <laughs> because, I mean, he, he went full societal diagnosis. I mean, you know, waxing poetic. And you know that the stuff that has been happening over the past weeks, him getting called out. You know, he couldn't resist to go get on TV. That's why we need to get this in Thunderdome. That's why <laughs> this needs to happen. I got the American Airlines. I'm ready. I got the popcorn. Let's do this, guys. It reminds me of uh, Jack Nicholson and A Few Good Men. He wants to say it. He wants to say it. Just give him the, give him the, give him the line to say it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. 100%. So, uh, interesting phenomenon. Again, uh, to your point, Franklin, I think you made an astute assessment in that you know, the way it's being portrayed in the media, he's basically it's basically looking like it's not my fault. You know, it's everybody else's fault. This is happening. It has nothing to do with me. And so it didn't, to your point, it didn't come off quite the way while the while the He's uh, right. Yeah, no, why the while the, while the, con, the content right. the content is good, the content was not good. You know, the, the the way it the way it's playing is not landing right for probably Starbucks. It's yeah. it's not sounding right. But but he's I I would argue that he's we have been arguing for years in this podcast that he is he is right. If I were in charge, yeah, of, it did, not, it did not land right. If I were in charge of PR at Starbucks, I would have a significant heavy drinking problem. So it's got to be it's got to be a tough tough duty. So uh, we'll keep following that uh, storyline as it as it proceeds. Frank, along before Mr. Coley came along, there was a hit song, I think, by Judy Collins called Downtown. And there's an article this week in Fortune magazine uh, lamenting the woes of downtowns uh, and saying that over the next 10 years, uh, occupancy rates 
are 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 going to be about fifty five percent of what they should be, and that's going to be the new norm. Office vacancy will skyrocket uh, over the next decade. If you're Franklin Coley, restaurant owner, bar owner, deli owner in a downtown area, things are not looking good for you. Well, Joe, Franklin Coley is at the office in the downtown area working today, but where are you reporting from this this fine Friday morning? I'm in a downtown uh, equally as big as the city of Orlando, just not in Orlando. Getting uh, getting uh, some, some work in before an early start to a weekend, just jamming out to J- JT, baby, James yeah. Taylor. James I mean, Taylor. You got whipping, out, whipping out your wad of bills to pay for, pay for uh, drinks at the bar. But uh, but even with us, I mean, we moved from a downtown office building to right outside of downtown and kind of downsized. And we do not report in the office like we once did. And um, our space, you know, the consulting space is a little unique, but like everybody's still semi remote work in our world. All the all the firms. And if you go through downtown Orlando, man, it's whew, it's rough these days. The occupancy is just not there. And that's the story. So I think it was NCSL this last week. It may have been like U.S. Conference of Mayors, whatever, one of their distribution lists. There is a movement um, among mayors and potentially at the state level as well to start pulling back incentives or, you know, there were a lot of these incentives to attract companies into downtown corridors to, to site their headquarters and then those companies all said, you can work remotely. And so none of those workers are coming back. And so I think there may be a movement to tweak those incentive packages to kind of force people to force workers to come back in or certainly rewrite them in the future that you're going to have so many heads and bodies that are reporting into work or, or living in those downtown corridors. I don't think that is going to be the the miracle solve for this. It's going to continue to be an issue where it's another COVID hangover, man. And yeah, it's super unfortunate for these these downtown locations. They're going to have to probably adjust to these new these new kind of traffic patterns, unfortunately. And, and, and so this, it's kind of a layers of the onion just keep peeling back or dominoes keep rolling. I mean, these, you know, these downtowns, the, the food and beverage, the hospitality sector is such an important connective tissue in downtowns. And whether it's lunch crowds or, or, or dinner crowds or theater, whatever it is. And, you know, these restaurants can't survive in a lot of places without that lunch. And there are people going out after work because they're not downtown. And, and so you've got this, this whole tragic nature of downtown. It's just, it's, it's a, just a very, very difficult environment for mayors and civic leaders right now. Not just obviously restaurant owners in the industry, but man, it is a, it's a, it's a real challenge for the next, for the next decade is how do we, how do we backfill if, if remote works here to stay, how do we backfill and, and maintain the vibrancy and economic importance of downtown? So it's a huge issue in the restaurant and hospitality industry is right. And it's not, you, you know, the, the wave of big box stores, you know, there was, we've been through this before, right? Where a lot of, a lot of downtown areas, particularly in smaller mid-sized kind of cities, as a, a lot of the big box stores came online and moved kind of customer traffic out to, you know, along the highway or, or, or whatever, along the state routes where there were like, there, were, there was bigger pads, they could build those things out. You saw a lot of people pulled out of kind of downtown, foot traffic pulled out of downtown areas. They figured that out, you know, uh, but it's, it's, it took a while. 
And we're probably back in a period where it's going to take a while to kind of, you know, refigure out, work with these new kind of traffic patterns and this new lifestyle that, again, it's just, it's another thing that has come out of COVID where customer behavior and work behavior has all kind of shifted and changed pretty dramatically in a pretty short period of time. It's time for Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And Franklin, the tip credit elimination march continues on and has gone on through my old stomping ground of Annapolis, Maryland. <laughs> That's right. We have a uh, House and Senate uh, bill, both that will be heard next week to eliminate the tip credit by 2027, a uh, bl- new blue trifecta state. So it's not totally unexpected. We're going to have a bunch of these labor policy issues kind of marching along, and we're going to have to pick our fights. And we've also got a scheduling bill lingering out there, too. So, you know, you, you rightly predicted the four M's, Michigan, Minnesota, Maryland, Massachusetts, would be going down this road. And uh, so far, so far, you are correct, my friend. New Hampshire, no shocker here. We predicted this last week, but uh, no minimum wage adjustments up there. Yep. Senate committee table legislation. Um that's probably probably done for the year, but you know we'll we'll report out if anything pops up. And uh, some happy people wearing orange aprons these days. Home Depot has announced another line of pay and benefit increases. One billion dollars. I can't do the the awesome yeah. powers. Yeah, yeah. One billion dollars. Yeah, one billion dollars they're investing in in frontline uh, staff for increase in pay and benefits. Uh, it's already the starting wage is already fifteen dollars an hour. So uh, Universal here in our backyard increased their starting wage a couple weeks ago to seventeen dollars an hour. Starting wage and Disney's in union negotiations now. So man, this fifteen thing is so like I say. So twenty nineteen. You know we're we're punching right through that that upper upper threshold. Switching gears, Franklin, to your favorite federal agency, the National Labor Relations Board, did some pretty significant uh, maneuvering this week on the issue of severance agreements and disclosure and what former employees can and cannot say. What's going on there? Yeah, basically in the Trump era, there was precedent established through a couple of decisions that severance agreements, companies could essentially uh, bundle in there that employees would give away or, or uh, give up some of their rights um, under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, and uh, yeah, this NLRB said, no, sir, no, no. And they they have essentially overturned that precedent. They will not allow for seven agreements to, th- there will be certain aspects of the National Labor Relations Act that are, are still protected and cannot be adjusted via severance agreements. Franklin, moving to Columbus, Ohio, there's some pay equity legislation on the docket. It's been introduced. This is a salary history ban, um, which is, you know, become a commonplace tactic to try to combat pay equity issues, pay discrimination. This is how it works. Toledo, Cincinnati have passed these things, and now Columbus is picking it up. So Ohio, the, at the municipal level, is kind of a little hot spot for um, this pay equity legislation. It's uh, Super interesting. And generally, the employer community has not like opposed this, has not gotten their hackles up. They've decided to kind of let it go by. But it is it's tough to comply with, particularly if you're 
you know, you have operations. It can be very, very easy for a company to have a location in Cincinnati and right outside of Cincinnati. And so now you're under two different kind of employment mandates here. So, um, you know, this will be problematic probably for a lot of employers. I suspect a lot of employers don't even know these are in the books in some of these cities. So something to look out for. Franklin, Ohio is a perfect example. We talk about a lot in this podcast of the red state, blue city phenomenon. Would the red team have the audacity to try to do a statewide preemption on pay equity uh, disclosure legislation? I'm somewhat surprised that it's not already kind of wrapped up in in preemption. I mean, I, I will see generally the employer community has not wanted to go to go to war with these things. So I don't know. I don't know if there's enough animus there around this and, and uh, for them to do that. It, if there were big fines and enforcement and that sort of thing, and it was super technical and hard to comply with, I could see a scenario where that happened. But I don't know if this rises to that that level. I, I tend to agree with you. I tend to agree with you on that. Uh, I was asking kind of a rhetorical question. That would be a, a, a big reach uh, for the business community. Franklin, I talked about the, uh, we talked about earlier the in Annapolis, the, the tip credit elimination legislation, uh, Springfield, Illinois, big rally this week trying to call attention to their pending bill that would eliminate uh, subminimum wages in the state. They had a serve the server rally in Springfield. This is an old restaurant opportunity center, little PR stunt and tactic. They've done this before. They did around Valentine's days previously where they served lunch to legislators and, uh, now they have legislators and, serving them so they can, yeah, legislators, sorry, legislators serving the server. Yeah. So, they so rough and grueling the work is firsthand. Yeah. I mean, I, I bet most of those legislators probably have worked as a server or a bartender, I suspect. But um, but yeah, expect more of this. I mean, we you know, we talked about Maryland earlier. You know, we're gonna we're gonna see more of this stuff. Tipped wages up in all these states. So, you know, just buckle up. So uh, we earlier in the segment we talked about Big Howie, uh, Starbucks in the news this week. Kind of an odd situation, Franklin, a, a federal judge in Michigan ordered, basically issued a national restraining order against Starbucks from firing any union employee, any union organizers, and then two days later, pumped the brakes, backtracked, rescinded their own decision, and now it only applies to one store. What, what happened behind the scenes there? When I read the headline, I, I was like, wow, is this a big deal? Like, I, I, I couldn't, I was, you know, the way the headline was written, it seemed like a big deal. And I was like, is this, is this a big deal? And, um, as I read through, I was like, ah, I don't, I don't, I don't know how big a deal this is. And then, yeah, they, they kind of walked it back a little bit. So it's unlawful to fire for protected concerted activity period in the story. You know, the union, uh, argues that Starbucks has basically been routinely as a matter of practice, doing that, targeting union organizers. And the initial headline was now there was a national restraining order against doing it, you know, essentially giving teeth to the NLRB's actions against the company, which they really need the courts to enforce. And then they, and then the courts kind of walked it back. So it's notable development this week, you know, as all these little twists and turns are, but 
the initial headlines were a little kind of misleading, I think, in the, uh, the sweeping nature of this. And lastly, Franklin issue that's been kind of working its way through the system for a couple of years, these uh, legislation banning third party delivery platforms from listing restaurants without a consent. Got a bill moving in Indiana. You would have thought Indiana had been dispensed with that issue a couple of years ago, uh, but uh, legislation moving there. Yeah, House Committee advanced legislation it says third party platforms. They cannot include restaurants in their platform if the restaurants don't agree to it. And I assume that means the way the legislation is written, that there's some type of agreement in place or probably short of a contract, but it's some sort of agreement. Bill unanimously passed head of the floor. We've had this second or third or fifth wave. I don't know. What wave are we in? We've had a lot of activity on the dr- delivery platform side recently, really with the platforms pushing back and trying to undo some of these fees, these quote unquote temporary fees that in many places became permanent. But um, yeah, th- this probably, if I had to guess, Joe, this one falls in the category of you know the platforms and the restaurants the the association in particular put out model policy, and I suspect the Indiana bill falls into that model policy that is agreed upon between the industry and the platforms. And so we may see more of that kind of moving in this. This is an issue that isn't going away, I guess. Not going away. Not going away. All right. That's a that's a scorecard for this week. Um, obviously, state legislatures are in high gear now going into the last half of February. And so we'll have more to report next week. Joe, in your mind, are you going to Carolina? In my mind, I'm going to Carolina. Yes, uh, Franklin, tomorrow night in the lovely Fort Lauderdale Performing Arts Center, I am seeing one James Taylor. You know, I I enjoy going to bands at, at smaller venues. I mean, I do go to the amphitheater thing every now and again, but I would much prefer an up and coming act generally in a, in a smaller venue. Sometimes that is performing art center, but I will also say that is, that is an age and stage when you're, when your band has moved to the performing art center and you're, you're sipping that Chardonnay in your, in your seat, that is uh it's a different experience than, than, than maybe when you saw JT back in the day, back in 72. In the smoke filled um, haze of Woodstock or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know what time the buses from the villages start piling in <laughs> for Lauderdale, but uh, I want to get there early, get my uh, Kendall Jackson Chardonnay, and just get in my seat uh, for that early kind of late matinee. But uh, it should be fun, and I'm looking forward to it. And Franklin, on that happy note, we will sign off and say thank you for listening to our audience. And until next week, stay safe, stay informed, and we'll talk to you then. Yeah.